Hey guys, let me tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Deep Cover Mobland is a true story of a high-rolling lawyer who helped the mafia rule Chicago until he went undercover to take them down. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jake Halpern takes listeners on a wild journey into a world of corruption, murder, and mayhem. You can listen to Deep Cover wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned until the end of this episode so you can hear a preview of Deep Cover Mobland. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Dirk and May Greendeer were both highly educated and successful. They had been married for over three decades and had three bragworthy children. The Greenders' life seemed ideal to everyone around them until one day it wasn't. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the murder case involving Mabel May Greender. Dirk and May Greender lived in Wellesley, Massachusetts, a green, leafy town located a 20-minute drive outside of Boston. The quiet, wealthy town is home to the prestigious Wellesley College. Many young professionals and families who enjoy a spacious suburban feel and quick access to the urban downtown Boston also call Wellesley home. Not much happens in the town. Incomes are high, houses are big, and violent crime is unusual. These characteristics made Wellesley an ideal place for May and Dirk to establish their home and raise their three children and German shepherds. The couple were well-known and respected in the community. Dirk Greender was a distinguished doctor affiliated with Harvard and an expert in allergies. May, his wife of 31 years, was a nurse working on an advanced degree in healthcare. Their three children, two girls and a boy, were all Ivy League graduates, two of them following in their father's footsteps as physicians. The Greenders' friends thought of them as a close, almost inseparable couple devoted to their children. The Greender family lived close to Morse Pond, a 100-acre wooded local park with a pond, and surrounded by walking trails that are frequently used by members of the surrounding community. May and Dirk walked their German shepherds around the pond almost every day. Halloween Day 1999 was a cool fall day in Wellesley, Massachusetts. The leaves had just started to turn vibrant shades of orange and yellow, and the temperature hovered in the high 50s. It was a perfect day for William Keir, a Wellesley local, to walk his small dog around the pond. While walking, Keir was suddenly approached by a man who was running toward him from the woods. It was Dirk Greender, and he appeared distressed. Dirk asked Keir if he could make a phone call for him, but Keir did not have his phone with him. He asked Dirk what happened, and Dirk explained that his wife was attacked further back on the path and he needed to call the police right away. Hearing that Keir did not have his phone on him, Dirk said that he had a cell phone back in his van and he would make the call himself. Dirk then walked off toward the access road in the direction of his van. On the way back to his vehicle, Dirk passed another walker, Rick Magnan. Dirk yelled to Magnan and asked if he had a cell phone, but he said he didn't 
So Dirk continued on and walked toward the start of the access road, where he called Wellesley police from his van. Police officer Paul Fitzpatrick was the first to arrive at the scene. He opened the gate that separated the access road from the road leading to the walking trails and proceeded in his police car until he encountered Dirk. Upon seeing the police car, Dirk ran toward the officer, yelling that his wife had been attacked. Officer Fitzpatrick slammed on his brakes and told Dirk to climb in. Dirk leaped into the police cruiser and directed Officer Fitzpatrick to a small circle in the road. Fitzpatrick parked his cruiser and the two continued on foot down the long dirt path until they spotted a long blood-stained drag mark that pointed straight to May's lifeless body. May Greender lay in a pool of blood and dirt. Her head had been battered with a blunt instrument. Her chest had been stabbed and her throat slashed. She was nearly decapitated. Her blouse had been pulled up and her pants had been pulled down. It was clear to investigators that May had been struck several times. She was pronounced dead at the scene. The autopsy revealed that May had sustained two non-fatal wounds, one a laceration on the back of her head that tore the skin and pushed it. The wound was likely caused by a hefty metal object, such as a hammer. The other non-fatal wound was a contusion on the left side of her face that fractured the base of her skull, likely caused by a padded, blunt object, such as a hand, a knee, or foot. But according to the medical examiner, neither of these wounds would have rendered her unconscious. The cause of her death was a large, horizontal stab wound into the left side of her neck. The wound, which was five and a half inches long and two and a half inches wide, was likely caused by two thrusts of a knife. Every muscle on the left side of May's neck was damaged. A second and potentially fatal stab wound was inflicted horizontally into the left side of her chest, penetrating the pulmonary artery and left lung. However, so little blood was found in the left chest cavity that the medical examiner concluded that the wound must have been inflicted either after or around the time of May's death. Paramedics, detectives, and additional police officers were quick to arrive at the scene. As they arrived, Officer Fitzpatrick escorted Dirk away back to the circle in the road so police could process the crime scene. This is when Dirk gave his first detailed account of what went horribly wrong on his walk that morning. Dirk told Officer Fitzpatrick that he and his wife, May, went for a walk with their dog, Zephyr. During their walk, May tripped on something, injuring her back. She told Dirk to go on without her, and she would meet him at the entrance to the parking area. Dirk and Zephyr continued on their walk, but when they reached the gate at the end of the path, Zephyr suddenly started acting strange and bolted back down the path. Dirk chased after the dog and eventually he saw his wife lying face up in the middle of the dirt path. He immediately dropped to his knees in front of May's limp body. He checked her pulse. It was weak, but still beating. Dirk said he shoved his two arms underneath May's body and tried to lift her off the ground, but he couldn't muster the strength. She weighed a slight 120 pounds, but Dirk said she was like dead weight, impossible to lift. Dirk told Fitzpatrick that he spotted a strange man in the woods running away from May's body, at which time he sprung to his feet 
and ran as fast as he could, chasing the strange man to the point he felt he would vomit. Dirk said the man was too fast and he couldn't keep up. That's when Dirk spotted William Keir walking his dog. Dirk said he ran to Keir and asked him if he had a cell phone he could use to call police. When Keir said no, Dirk said he ran back to the access road and phoned police from his van. Officer Fitzpatrick listened intently, but about 20 minutes after giving his account, Dirk started asking some off-putting questions. He turned to Officer Fitzpatrick and asked him if his wife was dead. Fitzpatrick told Dirk that May had passed away before he arrived at the scene. Then, five minutes later, Dirk asked the officer if he was going to arrest him. Fitzpatrick told him it was not his decision to make. Moments later, Trooper Martin Foley of the Massachusetts State Police arrived at the scene. Foley was a 17-year veteran of the Massachusetts State Police and a newly appointed homicide detective, eager to perform well in his new position. Upon arrival, Foley took a long look at Dirk and noticed that something was strange about his appearance. He noted that Dirk's jacket had reddish-brown stains on the chest area, both upper arms and elbows. His jacket also had a large stain on the left cuff that ended abruptly about two and a half inches from the end of the sleeve. Foley also observed a reddish-brown stain on Dirk's sneakers and a reddish-brown swipe on the left lens of his glasses. Despite his bloodied clothing, however, there was something that just wasn't adding up. Dirk's hands were completely clean, no blood at all. Trooper Foley asked Dirk if he had washed his hands since the incident occurred, and Dirk replied that he had not. Perplexed by Dirk's answer, Trooper Foley asked him why he didn't have any blood on his hands. Dirk was unable to give an explanation. Moments later, Sergeant Peter Nahas of the Wellesley Police Department arrived at the scene. Nahas went to the circle where Dirk and Officer Fitzpatrick were waiting. He also observed a reddish stain on the sleeve of Dirk's windbreaker jacket, all the way down to the wrist and on his running shoes. He noted that Dirk's hands appeared clean. Dirk also had two scratches on his neck. Sergeant Nahas asked Dirk to repeat his account of events. This time, Dirk's recollection was a little bit different. He told Sergeant Nahas that May had hurt her back while throwing a ball to the dog, not because she tripped on something, which is what he originally detailed. This time, Dirk added that when he finally caught up to the dog, it was licking his wife's face. He said that he tried to take his wife's pulse at the carotid artery and that the dog's leash was secured around May's waist. He said he removed the leash, attached it to the dog, then returned to his van to phone police. Dirk gave a similar account to Detective Jill McDermott of the Wellesley Police, but added that as he first approached his wife lying in the path, he realized something was wrong because her pants were open and she had blood on her neck. She had no pulse, but she was warm, so he tried to rouse her. Later that day, at the Wellesley police station, Dirk began to act strange and make off-putting statements again. Abruptly, Dirk turned to Detective McDermott and stated that he had told her everything and he had nothing to hide. Then, sharply, Dirk said that he had just remembered that his wife had given him a back rub the night before, so she might have his skin under her fingernails. 
Dirk then voluntarily surrendered his clothing to police. He also consented to searches of his house and van, and to scrapings from under his fingernails. His backpack was also taken from inside the van. Less than an hour after the murder, police had secured the crime scene. The Wellesley PD were on full-scale alert. This was the third person killed in a Norfolk County park in the last year, which was odd for a county widely considered as well-to-do. Less than a year earlier, a woman named Irene Kennedy, 75, was killed in a nearby park after becoming separated from her husband. And just a couple months before May's death, Richard Rayinger, 82, was also slain in a nearby park. May Greendeer was 58 years old at the time of her murder. Police noticed that all the recent victims were above middle age, and they wondered if there might be a connection. Let me tell you why Forbes is calling proven skincare the Tesla of skincare, where beauty meets technology. Forbes referred to the award-winning skincare brand like this because proven skincare creates custom skincare based on over 47 factors about your unique skin aspects, your genetic background, lifestyle, and environment. I started implementing proven skincare's day and night facial moisturizer into my routine and my skin loves it. I took their online genome quiz and received a personalized skincare routine that fits my unique needs. And because we're always evolving, Proven Skincare updates formulations every eight weeks as the seasons change and as your skin acclimates to various events such as pregnancy, menopause, or a big move. Don't just buy pricey off-shelf skincare products you think might work for you. Visit ProvenSkincare.com to take the free skin genome quiz and use code MURDERISH at checkout for $20 off your first order plus free shipping. That's ProvenSkincare.com, code MURDERISH, for $20 off your first order. P-R-O-V-E-N SkinCare.com, code MURDERISH. I've been on a roll binging some really good TV lately, mostly thanks to Acorn TV, the largest commercial-free British streaming service. I don't know if it's the charming accents, all of the tea sipping, or the fact that they drive on the wrong side of the road, but Acorn TV has got me hooked on their content. With hundreds of shows from around the globe, you'll definitely find something you're into. Whether it's mysteries, comedies, dramas, history, or something else, they've got it. Like the Acorn TV original Queens of Mystery Season 2 that premiered on January 10th. In the series that the LA Times called a surefire crowd pleaser, the British mystery tracks three crime-writing sisters and their 28-year-old niece, who's a detective. Together, the four women solve murder cases in a beautiful English region of Wildemarsh. But one unsolved mystery hits very close to home. The disappearance of one of their mothers over 25 years ago is one case that the four women have not been able to crack. With Acorn TV, I always get my British fix, and you can too. Try Acorn TV free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and using my promo code MURDERISH but you have to enter the code in all lowercase letters. That's A-C-O-R-N TV, promo code MURDERISH, to get your first 30 days for free. Acorn.tv, code MURDERISH. Police began to ask Dirk more pressing questions, but the more he spoke to police, 
the more Dirk's story became muddy as he gave a different narrative of events to various people involved in the case. He told a paramedic at the scene that his wife twisted her back throwing a ball to their dog, but Dirk told Officer Fitzpatrick that May had tripped on something that caused her to injure her back. Dirk told Trooper Foley that he only saw a wound on May's forehead and made no mention of the wound on her neck. Dirk also told Trooper Foley that he and his wife had not been sexually active for a few years because May had neck problems, but Dirk told his niece, Belinda Markle, that he and his wife had intercourse the morning she died. Dirk's account of the moments leading up to May's murder got eerily and conveniently more detailed as time went on. He told Elise Stark, his wife's sister, that the morning of May's murder that he and his wife had simultaneous nosebleeds as they were getting ready to go to the pond. Dirk said they both used a towel from their car to stop their nosebleeds. Dirk explained that it was possible that his DNA could have been transferred from the towel to May's gloves because of their simultaneous nosebleeds. Dirk also expressed concern to Belinda Markle, his niece, that police had photographed him and that he had red marks on his neck from shaving. Following the murder, detectives combed through the wooded path and the surrounding area. Amid the dead leaves, they found a mix of odd items. Just a few feet away from where May lay dead, detectives found Ziploc bags, a loaf pan, lighter fluid, and some latex gloves in a plastic bag. Further down the path in a storm drain in the road, right where William Keir saw Dirk walking, police found a brown right-hand glove, a two-pound S-wing drilling hammer, and a folding knife. These items contained reddish-brown stains and tested positive for the presence of blood. The day after the murder, November 1st, police found a matching brown left-hand glove in a storm drain outside the gate of the entrance to the pond's access road right by the location where Dirk had parked his van. It too tested positive for the presence of blood. As it turned out, the gloves found at the scene weren't just any old pair of gloves. They were a relatively rare brand and had a unique raised dot plastic grip texture on the palm, thumb, and fingers. F. Deal & Son, a hardware store in Wellesley, was the only store in eastern Massachusetts that sold those gloves. The store had sold only 40 pairs between January and October of that year. This meant that the owner of the gloves was probably a local. But why would Dirk, or anyone else for that matter, want May Greender dead? Dirk Greender met Mabel Chegwin in 1964. The two dated and broke up before getting back together in 1966 and got married two years later. They seemed like the perfect pair. He was a doctor of pharmacology and had a master's degree in medical surgical nursing. Their three children, Kirsten, Colin, and Britt, were very bright and followed in their parents' footsteps of success. As Dirk and May approached retirement, they appeared to be living a life of serenity. That is, until 1998, when their relationship started to get a little strained. That year, their last child, Kirsten, moved out of the house. Kirsten expressed some worry about her parents when she moved out because their entire lives seemed to center around their three kids. She was concerned that her absence would shake up her parents' lives quite a bit, and she wasn't sure how they'd react. 
but after Kirsten left, it seemed like the Grinders' marriage adapted well to the empty nest. The couple went out often and spent a lot of time together. After Kirsten left, May made some significant life changes. She started caring more about her appearance. She began dressing more stylishly, exercised more frequently, and entertained the idea of plastic surgery. May also went back to school to get her nurse practitioner's degree. But May was not the only one making changes. Dirk had made some major life changes too, only his changes were less obvious and cautiously hidden from his friends and family. On November 1st and November 12th of 1999, police executed search warrants at the Grinders' residence. Police tore through the family's modest suburban home and found items that began to paint a picture of May's untimely death. To the rear of the Grinders' home, placed inside of a doghouse, police found a pair of gloves identical to the single F. Deal & Son glove found at the crime scene. Further analysis indicated that fibers from the glove found in the storm drain near Dirk's van were consistent with the gloves found in the doghouse and from scrapings under Dirk's fingernails. Police determined that the local hardware store, F. Deal & Son, also sells S-Wing two-pound drilling hammers, an unpopular model. At the Green Deer's home, Police discovered an F. Deal & Son sales receipt for nails purchased at 8.55 a.m. on September 3, 1999, four weeks before May's death. Deal's records also indicated that an S-Wing two-pound drilling hammer was purchased three minutes later at the same cash register. Bloody patterns on the knife, the hammer, and the plastic bag that contained two other plastic bags found at the scene were consistent with the raised dot pattern on the gloves. A unique swipe stain transfer pattern consistent with the raised dot pattern on the palm side of the gloves was detected on the hammer, the outer plastic bag, Dirk's jacket, and Dirk's glasses. And two of the three plastic bags found at the scene and the bags in one box of the plastic bags seized from the defendant's home were determined to be manufactured from the same sheet of plastic. All signs seemed to point to Dirk Grinder as the perpetrator, but why would he kill his wife of over 30 years? The couple appeared strong and devoted. It did not make much sense. During the search of the Grinder's home, Police found items that Dirk hoped no one close to him would ever see. Police seized several computers, credit card statements, a 12-pack of condoms, and a box from the garage that contained a bottle of Viagra pills that Dirk had prescribed for himself. These items began to reveal the secret life that Dirk, the accomplished and respected suburban doctor and family man, was living. The seized computer hard drives and the credit card statements revealed that Dirk had frequently downloaded online pornography, rang up substantial phone sex bills, and regularly arranged meetings with sex workers in hotels and at his home office. In fact, about a week before May's murder, Dirk had an encounter with a sex worker in New Jersey. He paid for the hotel room with a corporate credit card account he had opened on July 12, 1998, under the name Thomas Young, the name of a college classmate he hadn't seen in nearly 30 years. Three weeks before May's murder, on October 10, 1999, 
Dirk opened an online account under the username pussywriter at yahoo.com. And during the week before the murder, Dirk opened another online account under the username casualguy2000. He then opened an account with an online dating service under the same username. On October 25, 1999, he sent messages to two users seeking a discreet relationship and mutual petting and more. Dirk was 59 years old at the time, but often lied about his age. He described himself as being 49 years old in one message and age 59 in another. On October 25th and 26th of 1999, Dirk exchanged graphic emails with two couples negotiating for discreet sexual relations as a threesome. He said he couldn't host, but he would be willing to cover hotel accommodations. He described himself as being aged 49 in that exchange. In the spring of 1999, Dirk arranged to meet a local sex worker at a hotel in a nearby town. He called her in September and expressed a desire to see her again, but she thought Dirk came off as somewhat confused, so she suggested that he not see her again until he found some peace. They spoke again, but Dirk told her not to contact him because it was not the right time. He called her escort service on October 30th and November 1st, the days immediately before and after his wife's murder, but she didn't speak with him. Sometime in late October, May's computer crashed, but May needed a computer to write papers and study for the courses she was taking, so she used Dirk's computer without asking. Dirk tried to fix May's computer on October 29th, just two days before her murder. During this time, a tradesman who was renovating a bathroom in their home overheard a conversation between Dirk and May during which Dirk asked his wife if she had been using his computer. Further analysis of the evidence uncovered during the murder investigation revealed a new account of May's last walk, an account that largely differed from Dirk's story to police on October 31, 1999. The blood spatter on May's abdomen and left leg indicated that she was struck after her pants had been opened and while she was in a horizontal position. Blood spatter on the sleeves of Dirk's clothing and marks on the ground indicated that Dirk had actually moved May by dragging her backward on the ground by her shoulders. May's DNA was found on Dirk's shirt, backpack, jacket, sneakers, and the plastic bag found at the scene. Based on the evidence collected by the Wellesley and Massachusetts State Police, on February 29, 2000, Dirk Grinder was indicted by a grand jury for the first-degree murder of his wife. His criminal trial began the following year on May 24, 2001, at the Norfolk County Superior Court in Dedham, Massachusetts. Over the course of the trial, prosecutors described how Dirk had set up a phony company and used it to apply for a corporate credit card in the name Thomas Young, that he frequently solicited group sex and escorts, and that this behavior seemed to become almost obsessive in the week before his wife's murder. In the seven days before the murder, the doctor contacted several sex workers, had sex with at least one of them, and sometimes spent more than four hours per day on internet porn sites. And he did this all in addition to keeping up with his demanding career. 
The prosecution called Catherine Irwin and Joanne Nichols to testify. Both Irwin and Nichols had advertised for sexual partners on an online dating service. The prosecution had both witnesses read aloud messages they had received from Dirk, who had logged on as Casual Guy 2000. In all of his emails, he said he was looking for an uncomplicated relationship. Harry Page and his wife, Amy, were also members of the online dating service, and they were called upon to read their message exchanges with Dirk. One message from Dirk read, I'm basically straight but flexible in group situations. Dirk and Amy traded nude photos, but a threesome was never arranged. Several witnesses testified that May had become increasingly insecure about the marriage and had become focused on buying new clothes, exercising more often, and had even thought about getting a facelift. Prosecutors theorized that May had discovered Dirk's secret life or was getting very close and that Dirk would go to extreme lengths to make sure his double life stayed a secret. Prosecutors also stressed that immediately following the murder, witnesses spotted Dirk emerging from the area where the murder weapons were found hidden. The prosecution argued that if Greender was innocent, he would have been spotted heading toward the most likely place to find help, the main road. The prosecution also introduced evidence that the doctor had delayed making the 911 call, that the gloves and hammer likely belonged to Dirk, and that the blood found at the scene, including on Dirk's body, was not consistent with his story. Gaps in our diets should not be ignored. Over 97% of women aged 19 to 50 aren't getting sufficient vitamin D, and recommended daily intake of key omega-3s are also severely lacking in this age group. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin was made based on extensive research to assist with nutrient gaps for women. This multivitamin is packed with nutrients that help support brain, bone, and blood health. This antioxidant-supporting multivitamin went through a gold-standard university-led clinical trial to prove its impact. The results showed that Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin raised vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in 12 weeks. And rest assured, this powerful multivitamin contains traceable and vegan-friendly ingredients. I've been taking Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin for quite some time now, and I feel great. And I love that each time I take it, I know that I'm supporting my skin health with zero shady ingredients. Right now, Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off your first three months. Visit ritual.com murderish and turn healthy habits into a ritual. That's 10% off at ritual.com murderish. I would bet that right now, you have more than a few subscriptions you're paying for that you don't need. And if you're like me, you probably just forgot about them. Meanwhile, some corporation is getting your hard-earned money every month. The Truebill app can help you find unwanted subscriptions and help you cancel them too. On average, people save up to $720 per year with Truebill. I could add seven more pairs of cute tennis shoes to my collection with that kind of money. Many companies purposely make it hard to cancel subscriptions, so Truebill was created to make it really simple to discover and cancel any subscriptions you don't need. Through the Truebill app, I found a few subscriptions I had completely forgotten about. 
Truebill helped me cancel the subscriptions, saving me more than $300 over the next year. This is great news for me, but for my husband, it means there's going to be a couple more pairs of shoes in our closet very soon. Don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at truebill.com slash murderish. Go right now, truebill.com slash murderish. It could save you thousands a year. Truebill.com slash murderish. The defense presented 10 witnesses over six days. Dirk Greendeer testified on his own behalf. On the stand, he denied killing his wife. He sobbed in front of the jury as he described finding his wife's lifeless body. Dirk said he was happily married and his family were the center of his life. He testified that his extramarital activity was not a motive to kill, but was his response to his wife's inability to continue with normal sexual relations due to severe back and neck issues. Dirk's attorney, Martin Murphy, admitted that Grinder had a taste for kink, but insisted this did not make him a killer. Murphy told the jury, the evidence shows a man guilty of adultery, guilty of infidelity, guilty of using the internet in ways that are disturbing, but it doesn't say anything about murder. The defense tried to pin the appalling crime on a serial killer preying on seniors. After all, two other slayings of older-aged adults in the same area remained unsolved at the time of the trial. The defense presented expert testimony challenging the DNA testing procedures as unreliable. The defense argued that the presence of Dirk's DNA on various items was likely caused by the phenomenon of DNA transfer. DNA transfer may occur when people casually exchange an item and the DNA of one may pass to the other in the exchange. The defense stressed that Dirk and May shared a home and a bed, and that having Dirk's DNA on various items was likely a result of being in close proximity throughout daily life. Dirk had previously claimed that both he and May had nosebleeds earlier in the day on October 31, 1999, and that the two of them had shared a towel to stop their nosebleeds. The defense produced expert testimony from two witnesses who explained that Dirk's genetic material could have been transferred first to May from the bloody towel they shared to suppress their nosebleeds and then from May to the gloves and other items held by the stranger who killed her. The defense called an expert who testified that the type of blood spatter caused by a medium velocity impact is easily confused with satellite spatter which is blood that has been dispersed as a result of force applied to a source of blood. He claimed that the spatter on the defendant's sneakers and other items of clothing was likely satellite spatter from when Dirk tried to lift May's body. The defense suggested that the police investigation was shoddy in many respects, including the failure to test the defendant's hands for non-visible blood failure to identify all the people who were at the pond that morning, including the owner of the car parked next to the defendant's van, the unreliability of the test procedures used by the lab that conducted the DNA analysis, police confusion about a towel inside the defendant's Toyota Avalon, and other aspects of the investigation. After a six-week trial and four days of deliberations, on June 29, 2001, Dirk Grinder was found guilty of first-degree murder. Later in the day, 
Greender was given the mandatory sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. Eight years later, in an effort to obtain a new trial, Dirk argued that the individual voidier portion of the jury selection proceeding at his trial was closed to the public, which violated his right to a public trial under the First and Sixth Amendments. After oral arguments on October 23, 2009, the case was remanded to the trial judge for specific findings. Shortly after, the judge received a letter from Tom Farmer, a former reporter with the Boston Herald newspaper who covered the entire trial. The letter contained a description of events that differed from the judge's recollection. Based on the letter, the judge requested an evidentiary hearing, which was held over three days between January 14, 2010 and February 1, 2010. Based on the evidence presented, the judge found that there was no oral or written order barring the media or any other segment of the public from the individual voidier. Dirk's motion for a new trial was denied. Dirk Greender made five additional attempts to get a new trial, but all have been unsuccessful. He believes what really convicted him was the evidence that he was secretly involved with sex workers. Dirk said that close to 25 to 30% of the trial was based on the fact that he had called escorts. He also believes that because he so readily cooperated with police, they were laser-focused on him and didn't check for other suspects. Despite Dirk's claim, the jury viewed the evidence of Dirk's extramarital sexual activity as being highly relevant as it was a motive to kill. Dirk gave contradictory statements to Trooper Foley and Belinda Markle about the recent sexual relations with his wife. During the week before the murder, Dirk feverishly pursued sexual relations and activity. In addition, he was insistent with people he solicited that their relations be discreet and that he could not host any romantic rendezvous, but he would arrange for hotel accommodations. In an email to one couple, he said he would first like to meet with them in person to determine if they were compatible, but wrote, I will tend to be impatient if we find we are indeed compatible. The jury members further pointed to Dirk becoming concerned on October 29, 1999, two days before the murder, that May had used his computer, on which he conducted his search for sexual relations. In September, Dirk told a sex worker with whom he sought to revive a relationship not to call him because it was not the right time. Dirk then called her the day before and the day after his wife's murder. The jury believed that these facts supported an inference that May had become an inconvenience to Dirk and an obstacle to the lifestyle he wanted to continue secretly pursuing. On June 29, 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court, citing an updated guidance on DNA testimony, ordered the state's highest court to reconsider Dirk Greender's case because he did not have an opportunity to question the reliability of DNA evidence presented. The case was then sent back to the Supreme Judicial Court for further review. The Supreme Judicial Court found, however, that Greender's attorneys had a meaningful opportunity to cross-examine the supervisor and said Greender is not entitled to a new trial. Dirk, who has now served over two decades in Massachusetts' medium security prison in Norfolk, says he loved his wife and still does. He admitted that he and his wife had intimacy issues, 
which he said she would not deal with. He believes that his indiscretion caused the jury to convict him. He claims to have spent more than 20 years behind bars for a crime he says he did not commit. Dirk is not without his supporters. His three children believe their mother's murder was a thrill kill. Dirk points to the Xantop homicides when two Dartmouth professors were allegedly killed by two high school students for the thrill of committing the crime. Dirk's children and many of his friends continue to assert his innocence to this very day. Dirk's family friend Sally Whitman said, The Dirk we know is a wonderful man that could never do this. I'll never believe he did it. Dirk Greender, now almost 80 years old, spends most of his time working on prison reform. He and his children have spent years fighting for legislation that would give so-called lifers a chance for parole after 25 years. But Greender admits that any new legislation would likely not help him as the parole board looks for inmates to accept responsibility for their crimes, something Dirk says he cannot do. Dirk says he doesn't take responsibility for May's murder because he did not do it. He is fearful that unless he can reverse his case legally, he will die in prison. On Monday, November 15, 2021, Greender appealed a denial by the Department of Corrections to parole him for alleged medical issues. Dirk refuses to publicly discuss his reasons for seeking a medical release. Friends and family remember May Greender as a vibrant, intelligent, innocent woman whose life was tragically cut short. May is buried at Newton Cemetery in Massachusetts, where she will forever be 58 years young. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Murderish. I'll be at CrimeCon in April of this year. The event is being held in Las Vegas over a three-day period. I would love to see some of you there. If you'd like to attend CrimeCon, go to CrimeCon.com and use code MURDERISH for 10% off a standard badge. That's CrimeCon.com, promo code MURDERISH. I hope to see you guys there. If you enjoy this podcast, do me the biggest favor and rate and review MURDERISH in your favorite podcast app. Positive ratings and reviews help new listeners find the show, and I also love hearing from you guys. Also, follow me on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. It's my favorite place to engage with you. You can also find me on Twitter and Facebook. Check out Murderish.com if you want to buy Murderish t-shirts, face masks, coffee mugs, and more. If you want more Murderish content, go to Murderish.com and click the link to go behind the scenes and become a Patreon subscriber. Patrons get immediate access to ad-free bonus content as well as other perks. Thank you to Jennifer W. for becoming a Murderish Patreon subscriber. I appreciate you so much. Murderish sound design and audio editing is by Justin Hellstrom. Some of the music was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Catherine Devine. Visit Murderish.com if you'd like to see a list of sources used for this episode. Stick around after the closing music and ads to hear a preview of Deep Cover Mobland. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast does not make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.
as far as I'm concerned, I'm a dead man right now. This is Bob Cooley. Or I should say, this was Bob Cooley. When I say I'm dead, maybe not even physically dead, but I'm dead in terms of Robert Cooley no longer exists. It all started back in the 1970s when Bob was a lawyer in Chicago. A powerful mobster asked Bob to fix a case, a murder case, so a hitman could get off scot-free. If you say you can do it and you can't, that could be a problem. I know what that means. It means you get an extra hole in your head. It turns out Bob was really good at fixing cases, and he did it for years until one day he decided to switch sides, go over to the FBI, and betray the mob. The moment I put the wire on the first time, my life was over. I could never practice law anymore. I could never stay in the city anymore. Bob could give us judges, lawyers, police officers, politicians. He could wire up against those people and go be Bob Cooley. I would come into the office in the morning, and if he didn't call me right away, I didn't know if he was in a trunk somewhere, dead. If it ever got out, they would kill me in a heartbeat. For approximately five years, a Chicago lawyer has been a government informant, secretly recording conversations with some of this city's movers and shakers. If you're wondering, why would a guy like Bob Cooley just decide to flip? Well, you're not alone. I've wondered the same thing myself, and I've talked to FBI agents, federal prosecutors, and former mobsters. Many of them are still wondering, who was Bob Cooley, really? I wouldn't trust that guy. He looks like a little scumbag liar, stool pigeon. He looked like what he was, a rat. Like, is this guy for real? From my perspective, Bob was too good to be true. There's got to be something wrong with this. I can say with all certainty, I think he's a hero because he didn't have to do what he did, and he did it anyway. Is he a plant? Is he a double agent? What is he? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover Season 2, Mobland coming January 24th from Pushkin Industries. Subscribe to Pushkin Plus and you can binge the whole season ads-free. Find Pushkin Plus on the Deep Cover Show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm slash plus. That was a preview of the new season of Deep Cover. You can listen to Deep Cover wherever you get your podcasts.